Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, the in-depth podcast for people working in the charity sector or more broadly to achieve social impact. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host and a consultant helping charities to increase their income and impact. I'm pleased to share with you that we now have a new way for you to engage with the show. You can submit your questions for me to ask future guests. To do this, you'll just need to go to our website and click the banner at the top of the page to sign up to our emails. That's the only place that we share who our upcoming guests are going to be. Today I'm talking to Ross McCulloch, founder of Third Sector Lab, who works with charities to help them use digital and social media as a tool to deliver organisational objectives. While some charities have always used digital well in their delivery or their fundraising, much of the sector is way behind where it could be in terms of digital capabilities. So we're going to be exploring some of the key areas charity leaders and teams need to think about in harnessing technology for social impact. Welcome to the podcast, Ross. How are you today? Yeah, not too bad. I'm kind of relaxed after after a nice weekend away, so it's good. Good, although the weather is now very, very wet again, as it's always the way in Scotland. <laughs> Just uh, living up to the stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So we're going to start off with a question from one of our listeners, um, also in Scotland. So this is from Nori Murray at um, SAMH, Scotland's Mental Health Charity. And she asks, is there a role for AI in helping the third sector to, for example, write funding bids? Yeah, I mean, I do, I, I've not seen any practical examples, but I would imagine that it has happened at the moment. So I guess for me, it's getting charities to understand that this is not this is not a future thing, but this is something that's happening right now. And actually, how do they harness the power of those tools? Um, I think for me, what would be really interesting is how do you use the data that's locked up in your organisation, maybe in, you know, it could be in across a range of Excel spreadsheets, it could be external data, and where could AI help you think about solidifying that information and actually correlating and making a good argument to a funder in a way that isn't necessarily the preserve purely of the big organisations that have got large funding teams or a data officer. And that for me is where AI could be really interesting is like there's there's often a kind of conversation where it's almost like a kind of dumbing down of things like oh AI is going to write your next blog post or you know even in the realms of writing a funding bid but actually if the bigger organizations are the ones that know those building blocks that get the money time and time again and they've got staff dedicated to doing that full time should they always be the ones that get the funding and actually for me there's something in there about AI potentially democratizing the potential to access funding and also the potential to make really cohesive arguments that are based on data or listening to users, not just simply crafting the best narrative that convinces a funder to, to give you the money. So so I think I think there's there's huge potential and we're kind of scratching the surface at the moment. But it's yet another argument for charities having good data sets and a good grasp of data, both internally and externally, that if they're going to start using AI, that's going to need to be a, a powerful starting point for them. I wonder if there's a, a use there somewhere as well, whether it's it's probably a, a different type of AI, but to from a funder's perspective to kind of look at the sector and say, right, this is the outcome that we want to achieve with our funding, which are the organisations we need to support. And um, I suppose if if all websites and things were equal in the sector, then you could just kind of do that and find find a bunch of good charities in the right sort of sector. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, this is like, it's a two-way relationship. The, the kind of traditional model where stuff goes to a grants officer, the grants officer makes some recommendations 
and then that goes to a funding panel to make an ultimate decision. You know, it's going through it's going through quite a lot of human judgment, mm. and often well, I don't know a huge amount of use at the moment of AI to kind of filter if there was a grants program that was oversubscribed and you had a minimal amount of staff to actually filter through applications. Where does AI have a potential uh, to actually? you know, properly scrutinise those applications that when they get to that funding committee, it's the best of the best has been properly scrutinised. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the one of the areas that it will be used. Moving on to a sort of broader question, if a charity chief exec, for example, wants to review their organisation's digital capability and looking at where, where they could improve and make better use, um, what would that involve? Are there some key areas that they would start with? Yeah, I mean, I think think for me, the, the big thing is is trying to move away from this idea that we need to craft a big, giant, separate digital strategy. Now, you might have something like a digital roadmap or an action plan, so you're clear on those kind of areas of change that you're going to focus on. But where I've kind of worked with organisations, that often I'm coming in to unpick a big digital strategy that nobody's really read or understood or used, and it's been a long, painful process, is where kind of consultants come in and they're doing something, but there's no ownership within yeah. the organisation. And actually, everything that you do needs to be aligned to your organisational strategy. Now, embarking on a digital strategy might be the starting point of renewing your overall organisational strategy because you're actually clear that that strategy maybe isn't putting users front and centre or it's not properly using data to make decisions about what that strategy should look and feel like. So for me, it's the, the kind of two things go together, but ultimately it needs to be really closely aligned with that overall, overall organisational strategy. And there are some building blocks of digital change that are you know, the same core themes that come up time and time again uh, in organisations. So I've been... Uh, running SCBO's Digital Leaders Programme for uh, what, 2016. We've been running that since then, uh, along with Maddie Stark at, at SCBO. And there's, so there's, there's six core themes within that. So there's looking at leadership. So uh, think about strategy. So how does this align to that organisational vision? How do you empower people in the organisation? How do you communicate what digital even is? And how do you motivate people? And how do you understand some of the, the concerns that your staff teams have got, and particularly when you're kind of working in bigger organisations, you may have frontline staff where this feels like a scary prospect to people. Uh, how do you create a culture of inclusion, innovation and collaboration so that you can actually do this stuff? And that for me needs to underpin a lot of the work that organisations are doing in digital where it feels like this rush to we'll kind of procure our way out of these problems or we'll, we'll buy a new CRM, we'll, um, you know, we'll get a new website and everything will be okay, but there's actually not that culture that underpins what people are trying to do. There's such a focus in service design, and rightly so, we talk about this a lot in our work as well, but often such a focus in service design, it never gets to that point of, oh, what is the change we're about to bring out? So it's very easy to operate in a kind of theoretical space where you design things, but never really get to the point where you make that leap of actually making a change for your users. Um, that that's not necessarily common in the third sector, but I have seen it happen. And I think part of the problem is there's not that culture of working in an agile way and, and taking risks. And actually, we need to have small tests of change in an organisation. That small test of change might be, you know, your staff exit survey continually tells you that your staff feel overburdened by 
HR paperwork and things like finding out how many holidays they've got left or applying for toil are really burdensome and it has to go through three members of staff and fill out three word documents. Probably there's your starting point is understand those internal users, fix their pain points and actually getting that buy-in for some of the more difficult front-facing service delivery stuff is going to be much easier. I think what I've seen happen a lot of organisations is they go for that very difficult disruption of processes stuff first and actually you know anything where someone feels there's a threat to the the job that they've done for the last five or ten years is, is quite a difficult place to start with and i think also tied within that is you know one of the things we always encourage organizations to do is is do a digital skills audit of staff so there's loads of good free ones out there I and mean, i think catalyst have got one like sabo have got one as well and um, and really getting to grips with what is our staff's digital skill set like from a basic level up where do they need support and training where does that differ across teams and then from there again you can start to build that culture of digital confidence which then you know ties into other areas like digital inclusion that you know people focus on digital inclusion being something that you know we do to the communities that we work with and actually for a lot of the time digital inclusion is about your own staff not being mm-hmm. um digitally illiterate and if we you can empower the people you work with until your staff feel confident in that space as well. Cool. And what, so what's required of leadership then in driving those sorts of digital improvements? Yeah, I think for me, like leaders don't need to necessarily be technological experts, but they need to ask the right questions. I think what we need to do is thinking about like who are those trusted partners we work with? And that doesn't mean we're just going to outsource or delegate. So, when, particularly when it comes to areas like cybersecurity, you know, the classic thing is our IT company handles that, so we don't need to worry about it. And then there's this kind of omission of responsibility or oversight of where cyber sits within an organisation and responsibility of people at a senior level. That's just one example. And for me, that that needs to be core. I think you know aligned to that is the work that we're doing to try and get more people from the tech sector on the charity boards that there needs to be digital leadership at governance level as well. This cannot simply be a thing that you know, often quite junior members of staff are making big decisions about digital because they're seen as the only digital person in the organisation. It then you know, maybe gets fed up to a board level to make a decision on it, but there's nobody at that board level to properly scrutinise the decisions that are being made or investment or changes to frontline services. So for me, it needs to, it needs to run across the whole organisation and the board is often Um, In terms of the co-design side of things with digital, I know in the context of developing services that are meeting community needs, um, understand it in that context, but I wanted to learn a bit more about the sort of design thinking in that digital context. (laughs) Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on a very basic level, this is about understanding the people that use your services, whether that service is, you know, the, the holiday form that I mentioned internally, or whether it's someone using, someone who's living with a long-term health condition, using a specialist service that your charity delivers for people. Ultimately, we need to put those users front and centre, understand how they're living their lives, challenge often assumptions about how people are living their lives, and then build solutions that are going to meet their needs. That, for me, is really what we're talking about when we think about design thinking or service design uh, or co-design. And it's really about aligning kind of set of core principles with some tools and an acknowledgement that every organisation at the moment is doing service design, 
Now, they might not call it that, or it might be quite a haphazard approach, or it might be sometimes an unethical approach, but everyone is doing service design. Now, one organization's approach to service design might be that once a year, we run a fairly tokenistic focus group with the young people we work with. We ask them a bunch of loaded questions. We fire that into a grant application, and then we get some more money. Another organization might have some really core principles around service design, and they might involve uh, users in all their key decisions and understanding how people live their lives and doing that in an ongoing way. So for me, that that's the really, the, I guess, the big thing is aligning those principles with the tools to kind of put this stuff into practice. Hi, please excuse this brief interruption. I'd love for more people in our sector to hear from our guests, so I'd like to ask a favour of you, please. If you're enjoying the podcast, please could you promote the show in whatever way suits you. This could be giving us a rating and following us on your podcast player, or following us and sharing posts on social media, or telling your contacts about us by email. Any of those would be a great help and greatly appreciated. And most importantly, thank you for listening. Uh, Lou Downs' book, Good Services, has 15 things that make up a good service. And that's a really good starting point, I think, for organisations to, particularly at a senior level, to get on the same page. Like, what are we actually talking about when we talk about service design? What does a good service look like? That's really useful. Uh, CAST also have their uh, good digital services, which has got kind of 10 principles within there that talk about you know, putting users front and centre, about being accessible, and particularly that notion of understanding what's out there already, so that notion of reuse. There's often this thing, I think, particularly within co-design, where it's like, we're going to work with our users, and then we're going to come out with this thing that's going to be groundbreakingly innovative. And actually, the end product might be that we spoke to our users and we understand the way that they're living their lives. And actually, there's someone else who's tackled this problem already, and we've spent a wee bit of desk research and speaking to that organisation to understand how they do it, and now we're going to implement 85% of that solution and we're tweaking it slightly to meet our needs. That is okay. Now, I think, again, there's probably a responsibility on funders, like every funder I speak to is like, that principle of reuse is core. We want our grant holders to learn from each other, but often people are in this mode when they apply for funding that could we better convince our funder that this thing is the mm -hmm. first time this has ever happened. And sometimes that is quite a dangerous place to be that for me, it's more powerful to talk about, we're kind of standing on the shoulders of other people and actually we've, and we've developed this piece of work and here's how it's going to work for our users. Yeah, what was the um, what was the name of the book recommendation then, sorry? Yeah, so Lou Down, Good Services. Oh, that cool. We'll put those links in the notes on the webpage as well anyway. Um, yeah, it seems like there's, uh, I think, people um, thinking about developing these sort of new services tend to think about needing to start stuff from scratch and have stuff kind of purpose-built and things and it seems like the people that have the tech expertise are kind of looking at it and that's going to be a terrible idea in terms of starting from scratch when there are so many kind of tools and platforms and things that already exist and you can um you know kind of adapt them to meet your needs um for different ways um, so it uh, can you give a bit of an example maybe to give a sense of that sort of user testing part of the process so once you've once you've launched something and how do you go about then getting that kind of feedback and making those changes as you go um, maybe there's a kind of case study that you could use just to kind of bring that to life a little bit yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not just going to kind of load this podcast of book recommendations. There's, like, there's a very, very old book now, but the principles of it still stand up in terms of user testing. So Steve Krug, 
Uh, he's written a couple of books, so uh, Rocket Testing Made Easy. I'm probably got the name of it slightly wrong. But anyway, so Steve Krug has written a couple of books on this. And basically the idea is, is, is about kind of putting user testing in the hands of ordinary people when he talks through some of the kind of principles and processes um, behind that. And so for me, I think, you know, everyone, everyone working in the charity sector in 2023 should be treating their website as a service. So even if the service is simply, it's the place where someone finds out about volunteering and applies for it, that's a part of the service. That's the onboarding to ultimately becoming a volunteer. And that, that for me is, is that kind of opportunity that's right to get people comfortable with user testing because you get something really visible. All your staff can understand, well, most of your staff will understand what a website is, what it's trying to do in those transaction spaces, whether it's volunteer recruitment or whether it's fundraising or whether it's self-referring for a service and actually doing some really simple user testing on the site. So we use a platform called UserBrain. And we did some work uh, recently with a community development organization the whole website was structured around internal language and internal structures. So things like, you know, rather than just simply calling a bike repair service, a bike repair service is sitting under like uh, community health and well-being. And then you can dig three layers deep to get into the fact mm-hmm. that they've got a service that repairs some bikes. Like that's the long shot of it. And actually getting charities to move into that space where we're thinking about a lot of the work has been quite transactional and that being okay. Um, and so we did some user testing on the site and almost every kind of transaction point, whether it was like yeah, the bike repairs or they had like a, um, they had a mental health walking group, almost everything that they wanted a user to actually do to transact with the organization was incredibly difficult because everything was hidden behind layers of how that organization described itself and structured things. And actually people seeing the recordings of those user testings within that charity a lot of not necessarily digitally literal members of staff. There was a huge kind of penny drop moment for them where they could see, right, okay, we've got amazing work, but actually we've we've put up so many layers that actually some small tweaks to the website can then bring about the change where we get a 20% uplift in bike repairs or we get 10 more people in that mental health walking group. And so that, you know, they're going through those changes at the moment of kind of stripping back so the site is focused on users and it's transactional, easy to find online. And putting it in that kind of real world context, I think is really useful for people. And also where the ownership is on the staff, the ownership is not on like, we got a digital agency, they did something magical, hmm. and now we've got a new website. We don't quite know why the new website is there. Maybe one member of staff knows, but actually trying to get that buy-in across teams and teams taking ownership for their kind of real estate on that site, understanding the purpose of it. Cool, and then um, in terms of the data, um like how we use data in the sector is a, an area that comes up a fair amount in my conversations, and I think it's kind of um, something that's been discussed a fair amount. I, I mean, for me, it tends to be about how you learn about the impact of your work. Um, what's been your experience of how charities are using data and what opportunities there are for, for better use of data? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's some there's some great examples of organisations using data out there. Um, you know, we're working with Myeloma UK at the moment. They're undergoing a kind of new data strategy and underpinned by that is how do we use data to make better decisions about uh, the services for people living with myeloma and trying to kind of take both external medical data but also the, the data they hold uh, on their own service users. So they're, I mean, they're doing some amazing stuff in that space and kind of making huge strides uh, there at the moment. 
there's some really nice kind of, kind of quite small examples as well that I've seen where a citizens advice bureau for example marrying up data from google analytics with uh, on page satisfaction and using that to make decisions about where they put effort into their content and advice and information so uh, if there's a if there's a web page that is the eighth most uh, visited web page at the moment on the citizens advice site and people are going there for information maybe it's something that's particularly topical at the moment or uh, there's been a change in legislation that's affecting people they are also then marrying that up with uh, user satisfaction data. So sometimes it's like sliding scale data or thumbs up, thumbs down the page. And then rather than just simply treating thousands of pages across a website as if they all have the equal weighting, they're taking that traffic data with satisfaction data, aligning the two things and then making decisions about where they need to make changes to content to better meet user needs. So it doesn't always need to be the you know, data seems like a really scary term, but you could start really small like that. Um, I think, I mean, a good starting point is, is, is thinking about a data audit in your organisation, where do those pockets of data sit, where potentially, you know, is someone sitting on a, um, a whole load of data where there's real concerns about GDPR, or they've been sitting on that data for years and nobody's quite sure how, how safe or secure it is. Um, I, there's, yeah, there's some, there's some really interesting stuff going in that space. Um, there's some really cool uh, stuff uh, at the moment from Data for Action, and also DataKind UK. So I encourage charities to go and look at both their sites and some of the kind of programs of work that they're delivering, the kind of toolkits they've got, where I guess trying to get small to medium organisations to understand that they can also get to grips with data. We don't need a hugely expensive CRM system. We don't need a data analyst and how substantial there's small changes that, that you can make um, to really kind of put data at the centre of how you make decisions for your organisation. In terms of the cyber threats and risks side of things, um, well, we might not want to go into too much of the sort of technical detail on that, um, but I thought it might be worth us just asking um, a kind of basic question around that for those smaller organisations who who maybe don't know um, quite where to start with that side of things. Are there are there just some basic essentials that? That charities might need to be aware of or some basic things that they ought to have in place so you can just at least be like okay have we got x y and z in place as a bare minimum yeah i mean there's some there's some really good resources out, out there at the moment i mean like so people like the national cyber security center have got a really good small charities guide oh, okay. they've got a really good service at the moment where they basically offer a cyber security audit so you go through the audit online, uh, and then at, at the end of it, you can get you can basically book in a free kind of forty-five minute call, which talks about the areas where you're maybe a bit more vulnerable. Some of the work that you need to do. Uh, the other thing, which uh, it kind of kind of comes and goes, but there's often quite good grants for the charity sector to uh, get cyber essentials accreditation, and that's particularly useful for those organisations doing. Uh, work with local authorities, where a lot of local authorities now will ask for that as a bare minimum. So, so there are a couple of things that I would encourage people to go and do. And um, I think you know there's always going to be a bit where your outsourced IT company is going to deal with some of the stuff that you're doing. So like, you know, what is your cloud setup? Do you have two-factor authentication on? Um, how are you keeping staff devices safe? Do you have um, a big your own device policy? Or do you give people devices? So there's all that kind of stuff where you can you can lean on uh, your outsourced or your managed IT company. That said, 
a lot of the times, well, a lot of the stuff that I've come across recently where organisations are falling foul of this stuff, it's not been, you know, a massively technological breach. Nobody has hacked anything. It's been a simple phishing attack. You know, someone has cloned a domain name and they put a hyphen between two letters. They've sent an email to someone who works in finance purporting to be the chief exec. They've done enough research to know who that person is, the types of work that they deliver. They've asked for, you know, it doesn't always need to be colossal sums of money, but maybe £10,000 to be transferred, which might be a huge sum of money for a small charity. And, you know, that's where things fall through the cracks. And often, you know, that exposes the kind of, the kind of culture of organisations where if your culture is that a chief exec can email someone and that person, no questions asked, will simply send that money, there's bigger things there about your culture that are not just about cybersecurity. So some of that stuff where we need to ensure that staff understand what a phishing attack looks like, we need to make sure that staff understand how to, to use passwords to protect their own data or their own logins. Um, you know, some of that, those more human errors, um, you know, you get a phone call purporting from, to be from the bank, how do you actually check it is from the bank? Do you even take that phone call in the first place? So those types of conversations need to happen within organisations and that needs to be a combination of training, but also, I guess, about senior leaders kind of like actually genuinely leading on this stuff. Um, and being clear to people about what their individual role is, that it's not good enough that, well, we've outsourced this stuff to an IT company and that will just deal with it, because that will only deal with some of the threats uh, that your organisation's going to face. But yeah, there's, lo there's loads of good training out there. And I think, you know, the stuff that the National Cybersecurity Centre's got is really good. There's a really good infographic they've got, which has got kind of, kind of 10 core factors around cybersecurity that every small charity needs to think about. And um, it probably, you know, I would argue that that, infographic works for charities of any size. Mm. Where that I've seen that being really useful is boards trying to talk about cybersecurity but having a framework to do it. So looking at those 10 areas and thinking, well actually we've got seven of those really well covered. We've done work on that in the last few years. Three of those we haven't even thought about and we're really weak. This needs to be a priority and um, we need to put some investment in this or we need to assign a member of staff to really get to grips with it. And so having those kind of frameworks for conversations where I've seen a lot of boards Kind of flap about with cybersecurity, and it suddenly becomes about people's personal opinions. But actually, if there's a good framework for scrutinising it, you can then put the steps in place to, to mitigate against it. And um, the other thing, and again, John Fitzgerald, the SCBO, talks about this a lot, is like it's going to be that when this happens, not if it happens. This is going to happen every organisation of every size. You might be lucky enough that a member of staff spots it. Not lucky enough, but you've trained that member of staff well enough to spot it. But that, that needs to be the culture is this is going to happen to us. We need to be prepared, not this might happen to us. No, I saw, um, I saw on your website, you've got a program around helping charities to build openness and transparency, um, which is about effectively communicating what they're learning and doing. Um, so yeah, I was just curious to learn a bit more about, about that kind of concept and what the program does. Yeah, so I mean, this kind of notion of building in public or working in the open is not a new concept. So, you know, Gov.uk have been doing this for a long time. We've been lucky enough to have uh, Giles Turnbull, who wrote, basically wrote the book on it. So uh, the Agile Commons Handbook, which talks about a lot of these principles, and Giles does work with us uh, as part of our open working programme to, to run masterclasses with, with uh, third sector organisations. But really behind it, in simple terms, it's the intentional practice of creating content, sharing your organization's story as it unfolds, 
you know, transparency, openness, and vulnerability. And that that is not about you know crafting a very careful press release to talk about something as it launches or to announce that you've got funding on a tweet. But actually, what were the steps before you even came to the decision to apply for that funding? So what were you what were the big questions you were about to ask your users? Did you work in the open so that your community could get involved in that? And again, that's where you know a lot of this sits within those some of those co-design principles that what we're not doing is we're not using co-design to go right we need to chase that money that's sitting over there we need to get a bunch of young people in our room to validate the thing that we already know that we want or need but actually how 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 are you really open and transparent about some of those initial questions and actually doing it in a way that the the post that you might share with that question on a medium account or blog or a blog post or your website is not about just engaging other people in the sector and it's not an announcement but it's genuinely a way of involving those communities that you're actually working with. So for me, that, that in a nutshell is really what open working is about. And so our eight-week programme, so we're funded as part of the catalyst to deliver this, is really about kind of front-loading some of that training to give people the confidence. So the kind of masterclass for Giles that I mentioned, uh, I run a session on open working, so getting people to grips with the kind of core principles. Um, and we give people skills in writing for the web. So if they've never done this before, it can be quite daunting. And then basically once a week, over an eight-week period, people come along to a week note session, and they're usually 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And in that 30-minute session, someone will write something about their work that they're working on at this moment in time. Uh, and so our Medium blog, which we kind of host all this content on, we've had about, about 200 submissions so far. Most of the, uh, the cohorts that we run have around about kind of 20 to 30 charities in each cohort. People initially start this and they're like, I cannot write anything of substance in half an hour. You know, for a lot of people, this is a fairly ridiculous concept. As people get into the rhythm of it, and usually by week two, people are really confident. And some of the stuff that people have written is phenomenal. And um, I think it also is worth saying that you know this lends itself really well to working in open around digital. But it you know it works for anything. So if you're working, you know, a front frontline member of staff working uh, in a, a counselling charity. And you want to use open working as a way of scrutinizing your work and engaging with communities in the work that you're doing, or maybe talking about a change of legislation that's having an impact on the people that you're supporting. This is a really powerful way of doing that. It does require a bit of a culture change in organizations where you know the traditional culture for content and comms is someone who's a specialist has an idea, they speak to a comms person, they spend ages kind of writing something, and then it gets put out in a very formalized way weeks and weeks later. There's very little incentive for that subject matter expert to write in the open on a regular basis if that process is so long-winded and there's another third party who ultimately has the control over what gets published. And so open working is really about giving your staff the skills and confidence, letting them try this stuff, but getting to a point where they are confident enough to work in the open and build that culture of transparency. And I think also for me, a big thing within this is this is, I think, Working in the open is often been framed as if it's a kind of really altruistic act, but by effectively communicating what you're working on and what you're learning and you're doing, you're also engaging your funders and your partners and communities more effectively. You're positioning your organisation an expert in its field. You know, you're building their reputation as a really good place to work. So getting organisations to think, you know, this is not just a nice thing to do, but actually working in the open gives us a massive competitive advantage. How do organisations manage it in terms of the sort of workload yeah that's a really good question i mean the the open working program is designed to create 
open work and champions who will go back into their organisation and think about ways that this is going to work internally. I mean, a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last few while is to try and support organisations to to not just send one person the programme and that one person works in open, but actually how do we support that organisation to do that? And that would be about running their own open working programme internally. We've got a, a thing called Open Working Toolkit, which is completely open source, so anyone can go and uh, use that. It's got things like WeCanotes templates, it's got some kind of core principles. That's really useful as a starting point for organisations who want to do this themselves. What I would say is like, you know, there's always that thing of like, I don't have time to do this stuff. It's like, if you can't free up 30 minutes in a week, there's something going really wrong in your organisation. What we've also seen is that, you know, working in the open actually saves organisations a huge amount of time. So, you know, in a really simple way, self-reflecting week, week in, every single week and writing about that is a really powerful way of scrutinising your own work and getting better and working in an agile way. It's also a good way of getting your own internal teams to understand the work that you're doing and ask questions and scrutinise it. And so when we're talking about things like internal columns, you know, we spoke before about there's a rush to kind of build our way out of these problems. We'll build an intranet, everything will be okay with internal columns. Mm. Well, actually, if you worked in the open, you don't need an intranet because people across the organisation know what others are working on and you can ask questions and you can comment on it. You can get into the depth of the, the work that people are working on. You don't need to wait until someone's put it on the internet or it comes out in the staff newsletter or it goes out in that 14-page PDF update at the end of the quarter. So for me, it's, it's almost seen it as a kind of shortcut to something that longer form content. So like if you're reporting back to a funder, you're doing a board paper or your annual report, suddenly you've got all the building blocks of that stuff because you've been working in the open maybe once a week or once a fortnight over the last six months. And all you're really doing is gathering up all that content and then you're creating that report or that uh, those research findings off, off the back of that stuff. So the kind of smart organisations that work in the open are seeing this as almost a kind of organisational brain where all that stuff sits somewhere centrally. And when you come to kind of, you know, someone asks you a question in the email, what you're not doing is writing out a huge 400-word response because you can suddenly send them a link because you wrote about that thing two months ago. So it's it can be a really powerful tool for kind of shortcutting some of those kind of repeat big conversations that people have to have internally or with stakeholders or partners or funders because you've been writing about this stuff on an ongoing basis anyway. Are there some sort of questions or prompts that you have for those sort of weekly um, weekly reflections? Yeah, so the, the toolkit that I mentioned has got um, there's a whole bunch of kind of weak note templates that people can use. And so what we found is like some people are really good with the kind of classic weak notes format, you know, which arguably is a wee bit diary based, like what have I been working on the last week? What have I learned? And then they'll do that. So it'll be week note one, week note two, week note three. But a lot of people and other organizations, they might frame it as a question. So it might be the big question that I was focused on this week was X. Here's where we got to, we've figured out 70% of it as an organisation, but actually we need our community's help to figure out this remaining 30%. Or there's probably research out there that helps us with 30%, but we don't quite know where we need to start with this stuff. So that, I guess that vulnerability built into the content can be really powerful. And again, that's a way of, you know, it's a move away from traditional charity sector content, which can often, you know, when you think of it, something like a press release, it's like, we got money, we did a thing, Here's the thing we did, end of story. Whereas this is about, we know 70% of the thing, we need you to engage with us and we need a conversation about that remaining 30%. 
I think some people really like that kind of listicles format. So uh, five big things we've been working on this week or five lessons we've learned about X or five questions we really need to uh, think about when we're working with older people in 2023. So those types of format also lend themselves really well to that kind of short window of 30 minutes because you can build out a framework really quickly and you can fill in the banks really quickly and you can publish really quickly. And again, it's a, it's a kind of move away from like, I think people think, well, I need to get something that is really polished and they agonise over a post and they sit in it and they edit it for two weeks. They ask three members of staff to read over it and give feedback and they put it out. And if you compared that piece of content versus the thing that was written in half an hour, it might be 10% better. But was it worth the extra two weeks to get it live versus yeah. 30 minutes to get the other thing live? And that for me is like, particularly in charities, they're juggling time all the time. And you need to think about where are we best spending our time? And if you're spending that time getting out four bits of content in a year versus you know, potentially 48 bits of content say a year, I know which one is going to be more effective. But what, what would you recommend for people wanting to learn more about digital improvement for their organisation or their um some websites and guides and things that you can uh, we can share links to yeah i mean we've got I mean, all the stuff that we've kind of mentioned already we've got on the, the third sector lab website so if you'll go to thirdsectorlab.co.uk they can they can sign up for the open working programs we've got a waiting list at the moment it's free to free to join uh, our digital trustees program where we're trying to get people working in uh, data design and digital on the charity boards so we run those once a month at the moment uh, we also have a, a thing which i've not mentioned called the curve which is a digital skills training program and um, we've trained nearly 6,000 people since the start of the pandemic across the whole of the, the UK third sector. We've got stuff coming up on AI and automation, uh, tool specific stuff and things like Canva and um, we've got stuff on co-design. There's quite a huge range of uh, workshops and usually it's once a week, 90 minutes with a subject matter expert. And um, what I think is particularly powerful about them is they're not, it's not a pre-recorded, you're not watching a video of someone talking through some slides, but actually you're getting real-time access to an expert and you get that chance to ask some questions specific to your organisation. So I think that's one of the things is like it's kind of almost part training, part free consultancy, um, which can be really, really powerful. Uh, SCVO have got a, a lot of really good stuff um, on digital change, so their, their website is worth going and looking at. Uh, the Catalyst as well. In particular, the Catalyst have a thing called Service Recipes, where they're gathering up loads of good examples of digital change in the sector. So that could be, here's a charity that's uh, struggled to manage volunteers as their volunteering base has grown during COVID. They've used a third-party app to manage volunteer hours and, and uh, manage volunteer resources. Here's how they did it. Here's the steps. Here's the costs. So that another organisation can basically lift and shift that exact same thing. And um, the, the Catalyst service recipes are, are kind of uh, undergoing some user testing at the moment. So there's going to be a kind of refresh of them. But at the moment, I think there's about 80 examples and everything from things like, you know, volunteer management to fundraising to using data to make decisions. So pretty much anything a charity is struggling with at the moment, there's probably a good chance that there's a service recipe there that can, they can deal with that. Yeah, I was going to ask as well with um, organisations that are maybe not looking from the perspective of like uh, doing a kind of review and uh, wanting to improve across the board where they've got a specific challenge um, and those sorts of like, tools to do an audit and things like that don't aren't what they're looking for because actually it's very specific around, oh no, a couple of examples people have been talking to recently. One's 
one was saying, you know, they've got kind of a, a few CRMs, you know, different CRMs for different parts of the organizations. And should they just have one that integrates and does everything? Or is it better to keep a separate one for the HR side of things? When people have something that's more specific, um, what's the, like, where, where, where do they go for that sort of thing? Is that when they need more of a, a specific consultancy support? from yourselves or from other organizations like yours? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, you know, it differs from consultancy to consultancy. Some consultancies may, you know, they might be aligned to a specific tool, so they might only work with Salesforce. They might right. not necessarily tell you that up front. Mm. And so you're kind of automatically, by working with them, you're suddenly trodden a path where the inevitable yeah. conclusion is Salesforce. Yeah, yeah. Not. Um, equally, there might be a consultancy who, you know, they might be great and user-centered, but actually have never thought to go and speak to another charity to figure out the problem. We're doing some work at the moment with quite a big social care charity who are going through exactly what you described, where there's a lot of data set in a lot of different places. They're at a point where they're ready uh, to buy a new CRM system. One of the things we're supporting them with, and it's been a really small piece of work, is actually don't rely on us to go and speak to your users and suddenly come up with a decision largely out of thin air but based on our experience of which crm system you're going to need but actually once you've done that work with your users what we can support you to do is go and figure out who else in the sector is solving similar problems what are the systems they're using what are the pitfalls what are the benefits what are the costs what are the time frames what were the bits where you need to lean really heavily on an external expert versus what could you do internally and so we've essentially gathered up that intelligence and we're presenting it to them. And we've got, I think about in that case, we've got four, essentially four paths that they could go down that are very different in terms of system, in terms of cost, in terms of time frames. And then it's about that organization figuring out what's palatable to them. So what works within their budget, you know, what's going to realistically work because the board, the board maybe set them a deadline that this needs to be done in six months. Therefore, the one that's going to take 14 months, either need to go back and convince the board or it's not an option. I think that that's the thing as well. It's like operating within the realism of the sector that we can have these kind of hypothetical conversations. But if an organisation simply doesn't have the uh, the reserves to invest in this stuff, they don't have the reserves to invest in it. And there might be a good solution, but it might be hugely costly, and that's not going to be one that they can they can choose. So there needs to be there needs to be that kind of combination of understanding what's out there already. And then, like, how do we operate within the resources that that organisations have that has? And sometimes, like, you know, it's sometimes quite big organisations with tens of millions of pounds of turnover, but there's nobody who's leading on digital. You know, they've not got an IT support person or an online comm person. Nobody's leading a digital strategy. They certainly don't have anyone who's a data analyst or a data expert in house. And so, part of that is also going to be like what are those digital roles that we need to think about creating? Where have those roles worked well in other organisations? Where does that person need to fit within your organisational hierarchy so they can actually get involved in decision-making as well? So there's, you know, suddenly as soon as you go down a road of just like, we need to be buy a CRM, it suddenly reveals all these other areas there where there's weaknesses, where buying a CRM and thinking of that as the end point and the solution can be quite a dangerous act because everyone gets really excited. Well, we've got the CRM, everything's fine now. But is it actually going to be fine for that organisation? But I think, I mean, like, just, just leaning on other organisations that you know and trust and other people who have tackled some of this stuff is really powerful. And that's that's one of the beauties of working in the third sector is people 
tend to be pretty generous, and particularly with the stuff that you know, there's not a huge amount of like like intellectual capital and we, we bought a new CRM system, here's the process you went through. Like people are fairly generous about sharing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um and yeah, with the with the smaller organizations who are exploring something where they do need to invest in in something where they, they've identified there's an opportunity and it's not it's not a sort of business as usual aspect such as we need a CRM. Um it seems like it's it's difficult to work out what the solution is that that is um sort of feasible within their budget and, and things and what's the right sort of approach. So um as an organization I've been working with and they've been looking at as I say, they're looking to develop this this platform that's got it's got some it exists, so they've got something already. Um definitely needs improvement, but it's got you know, it's got um some good traction. Um, and they're looking at it, and it seems like if you if you kind of build your own thing, um, then there are problems there in terms of the sort of maintenance of it. Um, if you go out and use something that's kind of ready, ready built, kind of off the shelf type thing, um, then it doesn't quite fit for what you need. Um, and then if you if you're looking to take something and then add loads of kind of a- integrations and and kind of tailor it to your specific use then you need someone in-house who's an expert in managing that and also kind of continually updating it as all these different kind of apps are integrates with are changing and developing and new things are coming on um like all the different options seem to be slightly out of reach for the sort of small organization so i don't know I don't know if you've what your thoughts are around like those kind of different like the resourcing question, I suppose. So I guess the starting point, you know, almost every charity I've ever worked with will try and convince me that their use case is very unique and it's never been done before. Yeah. And actually the building blocks of what people need will usually be the same. Like there'll be there'll be a fundraising need, there'll be a service delivery need. Um, you know, there'll be a there'll be an internal need for a finance system or an HR system. So the kind of core components will largely be the same, whatever the charity is going to be. Now, sometimes there's going to need to be an acceptance that we might want to do X, Y, and Z of the system, but it's out with our financial reach or our skill set. And sometimes there's an acceptance that we're going to buy an off-the-shelf solution that gets us 95% of the way there, and we'll worry about that other 5% in the future, because that's better than thinking about, well, we can't do this until we find something that ticks every single box because that day may, might never come. I do think, I mean, I think the kind of use of integrations and, and AI potentially within the sector is kind of is underused. There's there's often too much of an obsession with we need to buy one thing that's going to do everything. And actually we know we know that's not that's not going to work. Or it's going to be a very, very expensive, very long, probably quite painful process. So I think for me, like integrations need to be used more effectively i have a bit of a theory that i think partly that's not happened because it's not as easy as to sell people that it's not as easy to sell people okay you've already got this finance system and you've already got uh, a fundraising system here's how we can integrate those things it's going to involve a half day of work that's not a huge amount of budget for an agency when they could be developing a whole new system and charging for you know weeks and weeks of time and Filling for, for much more money. So I think 
there's probably there's probably a space in the sector of those kind of common integrations being a bit more transparent about those. So some of the work I mentioned, the kind of the catalyst doing around uh, digital service delivery and kind of processes. What would be really interesting is a, a kind of similar approach, but for like common integrations. And a lot of this stuff, you know, if you do the digging, it exists already. Like if you go on Zapier's website, they've got thousands of examples and you use their search functionality, you can find this stuff. But but actually supporting the sector a wee bit more with that could be could be pretty cool. Um, yeah, and there's there's loads of good off-the-shelf cloud-based tools for everything that people are trying to do now. Um, I think particularly as well, like you know, people like you know things like Monday.com, which have originally been set up as a, you know, basically a CRM system for small to medium businesses, but they've got you know charity licensing. I've seen some really interesting stuff where you know people like, uh, like food deliveries during COVID and then you know still being used, but they're using tools like Monday.com to track food deliveries and then track staff availability and then staff timesheets all within a system that wasn't really set up to do that but they've managed to make it work and they've managed to make it work because they can get a free license and actually the system's just taken an inquisitive person in the organization a few days of time to figure out how it works and set it up for them and that again comes back it's that culture of like we're going to try some of the stuff we're not going to break the internet if it works Whereas there's still a lot of organisations stuck in a kind of relationship with IT where we buy a thing, a company trains us for two weeks, all the staff get training, we've got a manual on how it works, we never deviate from any of those processes. And then we'll go through that whole process in five years' time once that system feels confident out of date and something else comes on the market. For me, there needs to be whatever you buy, there needs to be a kind of culture of inquisitiveness and experimentation where you accept that this technology is going to change all the time. And if you don't have a member of the staff or members of staff who are willing to experiment and try new things, then you're going to be stuck with technology that, you know, an external provider is the only one that really knows how it's going to work for you. And then you're constantly the one of them. I think that is um, a good place for us to wrap up. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to share at all. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think... Yeah, my big, the, big, the big thing is about, you know, how do we make this stuff available for everyone, regardless of size and budget? I think that's that's the thing that we need to get to grips with in the charity sector, where, you know, we need to we need to have a realism that most small charities are not going to have a team of service designers or a service designer or a developer in-house. Maybe, maybe that's okay. If that's going to be the case, well, what does that look like? It can't just simply be that those small charities just cease to exist and bigger charities gobble up all the resources because they can operate digital services at scale. So there needs to be, there needs to be more thought put about how we democratise digital and make sure that it feels like it's for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Great. Well, thanks very much, Ross. We will put um, links to all those resources and, and things that you mentioned um, on the episode webpage. Um, and yeah, thanks very much. It's been really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I, have a, I have a marginally better understanding of, of how we can be using tech in the sector now. <laughs> oh, thanks, Ross. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Charity Impact Podcast. Please give us a rating and follow us on your podcast player or on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. And if you think this episode would be of interest to someone in your network, please do share the webpage on social media or by email.